This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Studio One and to another session of ACME's Desert Isle and Flix program. Uh, my name's Lizetta. I'm a public programs producer here at ACME. First, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered here this evening and pay my respects to their elders past and present and elders from any other communities who may be here tonight. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Desert Island Flicks, it's an ongoing series of talks that explores the cinematic interests of a range of prominent guests by sending them to a theoretical desert island with nothing but their top five favourite films. And a coconut. Yeah. And a cocktail with a little... (laughs) And and suntan lotion. Yes. (laughs) And, and, the kitchen sink. In tonight's session, we are, of course, getting stranded with acclaimed director Gillian Armstrong, who will be sharing with us a few of her significant films and the reasons why they mean so much to her. A little about Gillian. Gillian Armstrong first garnered attention for her debut feature, My Brilliant Career, in 1979, adapted from the classic novel by Miles Franklin. At the film's release, Gillian held the distinction of being the first woman to direct a feature-length movie in Australia in almost 50 years. Her feature films and documentaries include Starstruck, Mrs Soffel, High Tide, The Last Days of Chenu, Little Women, Oscar and Lucinda, Charlotte Grey, Unfolding Florence, Death Defying Acts and Love, Lust and Lies. To take a breath after that. (laughs) Gillian's most recent feature documentary on Ori Kelly, Women He's Undressed, has been released to great acclaim. It has recently been nominated for a 2015 Actor Award, a 2015 Orgy, and will be screening at the 2015 Toronto International Film Festival. And Gillian has been a very special guest with us these last couple of days. She's been here at ACME to launch the opening of our new Gallery 2 exhibition, Ori Kelly Dressing Hollywood, the world premiere celebrating the life and work of one of Australia's most successful artistic exports to Hollywood. And returning to host this evening's event and joining Gillian for her countdown of her Desert Island films is the wonderful Deb Verhoeven. Deb is currently Professor and Chair of Media and Communications at Deakin, having previously held the role of Director of the AFI Research Collection at RMIT. She is a writer, broadcaster, film critic and commentator and is an author of an ever-growing collection of journal articles and book chapters. In addition, Professor Verhoeven is also Deputy Director of the Centre for Memory, Imagination and Invention and in 2013 was recognised as Australia's most innovative academic. It's for my boots. <laughs> so on that note, please relax and enjoy this evening's um, event. Uh, and join me in welcoming Deb Verhoeven and our very special guest, Gillian Armstrong. Thanks, Lizetta. Welcome, everyone. You are in for such a treat tonight. You have no idea. I do, because I've seen the list. Um, so the way this works is... Um, There'll be conversation occurring and interspersed, uh, Gillian will be counting down her Desert Island Discs. So we start with the fifth and we end with the first. Um, And it's 
it's kind of a nice little guessing game, I think. You know, you'll all be sitting there wondering what's next. Um, the um, opportunity for you guys to ask questions will occur toward the end. So if you have questions, hang on to them, please. Um, it's a really nice opportunity for you to engage. It's such a, a lovely, intimate setting in here. Um, it's, a, it's a really gorgeous uh, conversational space. So please hang on to those questions. Um, I have to say, uh, anyone who knows me knows I have a shocking propensity for puns. And um, I am suppressing the desire to talk about brilliant careers, about being starstruck. Um, <laughs> the death-defying acts required of filmmakers in contemporary Australian cinema. I'm leaving out Love, Lust and Lies. Okay. I was trying to think, if I, got, <laughs> I was trying to think what title have I got that would sound terrible. Love, Lust and Lies is okay. No, it's good, it's good. It's it might be saucy edge. Too much information, maybe, I don't know. We might get there. Not 14 again, I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> um, and yes, women, he's undressed. I'm not sure where we will go with that no. one, but we'll see. <laughs> um, of course, I am a little bit starstruck because one of the things about Gillian, which is so remarkable, is the extraordinary diversity of her work. Um, she's, you know, alternated between shooting in Australia and in the US, between period drama and contemporary drama, between films for theatrical release and TV, between documentary and drama and so on. It just goes on. She's like the polymath of cinema um, in Australia. And I think this is a, a quite exceptional instance of what the cinema is capable of in this country and, and it's kind of personified in, in Gillian's career. So I'm really hoping that we'll get to, to drift through all those different pathways and, you know, different, I guess, angles on, on how, to, how to have a career, how to succeed in all formats that you attempt. Phenomenal. Um, we don't always succeed, but, yep, go on. Well, I think that's a matter of opinion. I mean, from my perspective, it feels like you, whatever you try your hand at, you do so well at. And I think um, we forget how difficult that is. Um, some people are very good at doing one thing over and over and over again. Um, to meet someone who's actually capable of succeeding across such a range of formats and approaches and styles and places is really quite remarkable. And I don't think we can underestimate that. So I'm really hoping that we can draw all that out tonight. So um, as I said, a real treat. Um, so I want to go back to where it all started. <laughs> Gillian. Yes. You don't need to lie down for this. It's okay. Um, yes, Professor. <laughs> tell us about the first movie you remember seeing. Well, I mean, I, if I'm, like, really honest, it's probably, like, Tom Thumb or something at the Baldwin Cinema. But the one that I remember seeing and being really... I mean, I actually love Tom Thumb. Um, oh, and actually, it just came back to me. It ran in a double bill with a film where they have that song, Hi Lily, Hi Lily, Hi Low. The Song mm. of Love is... What's that film? But anyways, that was very... It was really sad. Somebody dies or something. There's a carousel. Anyway, so there was that. But then I remember being taken um, to see To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, wow. um, my father... I think he took the three of us. Um, I grew up in um, Mitcham. And so it was either at Bourne or Camberwell Cinema. I, so I remember, you know, we had no local cinema, so it was a big deal. And it was absolutely mind-blowing. And I realise now as a grown-up that he, he knew the, the story and the theme and he purposely took us to see something because of its social content and because, unlike Tom Thumb, it had... Um, it dealt with racism um, and it dealt with the 
personal dilemmas and integrity. And I think I must have been about the same age as Scout in my memory, because, you know, there was this, these kids and they were, I was in the story with them and it's really scary because they've got, remember, they've got Boo next door and, and the whole thing about how black people were treated um, was an amazing eye-opener for a little girl from the suburbs. And, you know, it stayed with me forever and probably did help develop a social conscience. Dad's um, decision to take us to it Were your parents right. liberal in that sense? Not liberal in the orthodox political sense, but small L liberal? Yeah, no, um, definitely I think that we were all brought up. I mean, I know, I mean, I know my father ended up, after he retired, working for charities and... Mm. Um, I mean, even when he, you know, was finally taken ill and I went home to look after my mother for a while, um, at that point he was running this whole scheme making the calico dolls for the children's hospitals. And I was, and there were, this whole thing was going on with the people that, who were sewing them at home, who were delivering them to Mr Armstrong, and then the other people were coming to get the, the cloth and he got factories to donate cloth and the, the, um, all the stuffing, which was in the garage. So even though he was... At that point, quite seriously ill, I realised he had this got this whole thing going. So yeah, that's his his heart was very much in, even though he had to go in the family business and all that stuff and become a suburban real estate agent. But he he was a very strong member of like in doing things for the community always. Yeah. And so when you decided to to go to film school or to Swinburne, how, how were they about that? Was that something that they always thought was a, a possibility for you or did they have different aspirations? Or um, My father wanted to be in the arts. He, okay. he wanted, his hobby was photography. Um, so he absolutely, I mean, it's that old thing, you know, you make, I think when you're brought up by your parents, some things you think, I'll never do that. I won't make the, force them to eat their vegetables, but um, there, are, there are other things you think, yeah, no, I'll do that. Well, he was not going to be like his father who forced him into the family business and he didn't have a career as a photographer as he would have liked to. So he absolutely backed um, my decision to do something in the arts. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. That's not the experience a lot of kids at that age might have had. Oh, no, no. Well, all my best um, girlfriends, it's, I mean, basically growing up in Melbourne in the 60s, women were um, teachers, nurses and secretaries. Um, then that's reality. That was the world. And, you know, my, um, one of my best friends who was a really good actress, um, her family put a lot of pressure on her to say, well, no, no, well, that's a lovely idea, but you go into teaching. Um, but, you know, I had the opposite. I mean, you can also say I carried out his dreams, you know. I did read somewhere that you avoided learning typing for a long time, which I, I share with you actually. I also avoided learning typing because it was a definite pathway to being a secretary or a, you know, typing pool member. Um, but you know the context of why. No, why? do tell. Do tell. Well, when I'd finished my four-year diploma of film and television and I'd made, my, you know, the little roof needs mowing my graduation film at Swinburne, um, what we all then applied for jobs. And basically, there were only two places in Victoria. You either went to Crawford's um, or you went to the ABC. And ABC did, you know, very good drama and so on. So, but the a ABC were set up, they'd take people into 
Um, they could take people to editing, stage management, camera, sound, and um, my and all the boys in my year got interviews, and I had a letter back which said, "No, so no interest in seeing my graduation film." Mm. Um, I think they might have even said they didn't take women into uh, ever into editing because they wouldn't have a woman alone in the dark with the <laughs> with the man, the editor. Um, but they said that I, if I was interested in working at the ABC, I should apply to the typing pool with my typing speeds. That's when I said, goodbye ABC, I have no interest in working there and I will never, um, ever learn to type and report to the typing pool. I I had a similar experience, except that, of course, now in my job, I really need to know how to type. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, after a, um, a couple of years of waitressing in Sydney, and I'm finally getting into the film industry, I, I did, with an aunt in Sydney that I was staying with, I did actually go a, f a few times to one of those touch typing courses where you have headphones and you're, you've got a screen and everything. Not that I ever became great. But actually, when I started as an assistant editor, when I finally got a job, every now and again, the receptionist might have been ill, and I'm in the editing room and they'd come and say, um, well, they used to call me Ocker Jill because I wore jeans, which was also considered so outrageous that a woman wore jeans to work. Um, so they didn't really want to take me to the front desk, but occasionally um, <laughs> they thought that they should. But then I could say, oh, no, I can't type. No, no, no. But I can lace the 35mm projector. <laughs> Yes, I remember when I learned to thread, thread a projector, someone tried to describe it to me as being like a sewing machine. You know, and that, you know you're threading, and I'm like, it's nothing like a sewing machine. But yeah. I've got to say, I boast now, but actually when I was at Swinburne, I was the class joke. Every technical thing, like learning to thread the projector and, and doing and rewinding fast and so on. Um, Nigel Buse, our lecturer at that time, used to have great fun setting me up. He was like, okay, class. While um, Jill keeps going and trying to do fast rewind, because I would be winding and then the film would go up in the air, then it would snap. <laughs> then I had to tape it together and then put it all back in order and keep going. And then, um, so I was actually the cl class. <laughs> I'm actually completely technically inept at everything. You just keep inspiring me. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I had to become a director, because I surround by people who can, who can do it, you see. So tell us a little bit about the milieu at Swinburne. Like, um, you know, who was there? What, what was it like? What were students doing in those days? I mean, I know a lot about what students do nowadays, which is actually they work a lot, you know, to fund their, their passage through their degrees. It's a little bit depressing. Was it like that? Did you have to work? Did people have a lot more freedom? Well, I did stay home till I finished. Um, I used to work, uh, I used to waitress at McClure's, which was um, a, a restaurant in Berks. Somebody laughed, you remember that? Um, <laughs> And it was so exciting because they had phones you could call up and we all fought to get the job to be the one on the phone taking down the orders. So, and it was above the movie, the cinemas. Um, so yeah, I used to capture training from Mitch and my sister and I both worked there as, as, as waitresses on Saturday, but I did stay home. I mean, a lot of the, um, there were a lot of people in share houses and stuff around Hawthorne and um, Glen Ferry and so there were great parties, but I worked out that it was still nice to come home and so someone, was, someone was cooking the chop and three veg, yeah. <laughs> you always knew when the last train out to Mitchum left the station and... Oh, that was a Saturday night after yeah. um, going to all the clubs in yeah. Melbourne. Yeah, so it was a fantastic time. I've got to say, 
my time at art school was just like mind-blowing from a little girl from the suburbs. When I, I remember when I, you used to have, you did general art and design and then you either went into the film and TV course, which I think had only been running three or four years, Jill Bilcock and um, Ian Baker, Fred's um, uh, Skepsis cinematographer, both were like older graduates. Um, so you either went into the film and TV course or you went into graphic design. So I actually escaped um, my daughter's laugh at the fact they said, our mother didn't even do her HSC VCE because you could you could do your um, matriculation year as because it was a tech course it was a four year diploma and um, I've got to say my teachers said we don't think she should go and she could do very well at university and I'm just like I said from seeing that open day at Swinburne seeing all the art on the walls and seeing the student films I'm like I want to go there I want to go now. You know, I went to an incredibly ordinary um, suburban high school, Vermont High. It was only three years old. There was only like one year ahead of us. Um, my art teacher used to say, we're now going to see a film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my father, um, it's that old thing, you know, yes, so he wasn't going to, there were two, th he was very determined about a number of things in his life. One of them was that, if his children, whatever they, they wanted to follow, he would encourage it. Number two, he was forced to go to a boys' school, to Box Hill Grammar or something. My grandfather was the mayor of Nunawading, Norman Armstrong, and my father felt this terrible pressure and he hated that school. So he, would go, he was going to send his kids to co-ed, no matter what. And I like begged, I was like, you know, please, can I go to MLC or my girlfriends are going there or Tintern? No, you're going to, and, and in later years, you know, I mean, I think it was, it was, it wasn't a great education, it wasn't a very inspired school, it's probably fabulous now, so please, if there's anyone here from Vermont High School, I don't mean, this was um, a long time ago, but when I finally broke into the film industry and had to direct and I was surrounded by a crew of 60 men, look, it was the best thing ever. I'd gone to a co-ed school. I mean, the boys in our class were just a bunch of doofuses up the back farting and burping, and so were the crew, you know? <laughs> I mean, the theory of people who don't know about co-education always thought, you know, we'll all just be, like, in love with the boys and not do any work. I mean, those idiots, you know? You might have liked someone who was, like, two years in advance, but really you only liked the boys at the other schools. So, actually... I mean, I've got to say, I think that was one of the reasons that I was never, never freaked out being in a man's world. Never at all. So, Dad, you know, you got that right. Probably a great segue to the first clip, the idea of the man's world. Mm. Um, so, um, we're going to um, prepare for the first clip, yay? Now, should I prep yes, you should. why I'm doing my clips or do that at the end? I think you can say now why why this particular clip, and you can reveal it because we're going to show but it. But so. in anything in a thematic way or not? Yeah. I'm allowed to do that? You're allowed to do that. Okay. So, first of all, I thought this was the most hideous thing to ever, ever have to do, that is to choose my five favourite films. <laughs> I don't have five favourite films. I've got, like, 60 films that I love. And to, to, to narrow them down where they sort of define me um, was inc incredibly hard. I don't know why I've agreed to do this. It was like <laughs> eight months ago. So I, I spent like 
weeks tossing and turning. You know, I thought, oh, well, I can do like To Kill a Mockingbird because, you know, that, I mean, I can do, I mean, it's interesting too when you do have to think about, well, what are these films that you would say um, you would choose as favourites? And I think that there are films that at that time and that place had a significant effect on you, like me at age 10 seeing To Kill a Mockingbird and, and, and not knowing that the world could be cruel or... Um, you know, me seeing The Conformist when I was at Swinburne and like, or Bicycle Thieves, which is probably um, also one of the most powerful films of the Italian um, neorealist film that I saw when I was at Swinburne and we started seeing world cinema. But if I was really honest about what I'd take on a desert island, I'd probably take a few musicals and I'd probably take a few rom-coms, you know, like <laughs> maybe, I don't know, Love Actually, Notting Hill, just something to laugh at. <laughs> and, you know, maybe I'd one run Cabaret and even Oklahoma because that was Mum's favourite thing. I know all the songs and, you know, that's... I mean, you've, you've got to entertain yourself in Desert Island. Do I want to, like, <laughs> sit through, like, some nitty-gritty neo-realist film where in the end, you know, he loses his father and the bike and... <laughs> over and over? So th these are the, the, the dilemmas I've had. This selected. is a great entree to the next clip, by the way. Um, so... And then, the la over the last year, being on out again, trying to <laughs> coming out to flog a film, my Ori Kelly documentary. Once again, I'm asked, and I've been asked hundreds of times for 30 years, what's it like being a woman director? Is it different being a woman director? And I just, and you know, why aren't there more women directing film? And I just, and I've always gone, you know, well, it's it's about your talent and getting out there. Well, I'm sorry, after 30 years, I go to this conference that the film school have and they publish this document, Lumina, and they're, they're now analysis of the figures. I mean, I can tell without seeing the analysis, but it's something like, in the last 25 years, the amount of, the increase in women directing, which is the creative heart of films and storytelling has increased by something really pathetic like, I don't know, it's 11 percent or something? Yeah. And in fact, the above-the-line roles have decreased for women overall over 30 years. This is, this is a, a moment of enormous despair for most of us in the industry, that those of us who have been activists for many years trying to get equity for women in this industry have failed. And you go, well, I mean, I know that the are just as many women going to film school, yep. just as many graduating, yep. just as many winning short film competitions at the festivals and so on, and you go, what has gone wrong? Like, why aren't there as many women directing? And, uh, you know, they've got a few role models up there. You know, I might have been the first, but there's so many others, Jane Campion, Kate Shortland, and so uh, my guild, the Directors Guild, have we formed a... <laughs> a women's action committee saying, and it's interesting because it seems to be happening in so many businesses where, I mean, I've for years gone, you know, it's, it's got to be about talent. I'm now saying it's not a level playing field and we have to look at it. Just like they're saying, well, why aren't there more women on boards? And so, so I thought... So I like to think of it the other way, right? What's it's that? about why aren't there more women? I think we need to be framing it where women aren't the problem. Why are there so many men? I agree. And we need to have quotas for men. 
Yep, yep. It's all around the wrong way. Get out. Yeah, basically, it's, it's the get off the stage moment. You've had your time. You've had 30 years. Yep. You've buggered it up. You haven't been very diverse. So it's time to leave now. So therefore, I thought... <laughs> there are some amazing women directors and there are many who've made films that are so much better than those boys' films. And so I've chosen five... Well, no, four women's films and one that has uh, uh, something significant to say about women, even though all, for all those years I've said, don't even call me a woman director. Why can't I just be a director? Why can't I just be Gillian Armstrong? You don't ask the men. You don't say to Peter Weir or Philip Noyce or something, you know, what's it like being a male director? Like... Yeah, because that's just considered normative. Yeah. This, this is why I want to flip it and turn it into the other problem. But that's, that's you know, something we can riff about. Yep. over several whiskeys. So, you know, really, I, I, really I'd take Oklahoma and Cabaret and um, um, maybe Love Actually or what's the other one with, uh, with, with Hugh Grant and um, Julia Roberts. But, um, but instead, we're going to start with a clip from... Drumroll. Uh, the first clip is from Seven Beauties, directed by Lena Vertmuller. Um, she was nominated for an Academy Award for directing and script writing, and she won script writing, correct? Yeah. One of a handful of women that have been nominated for Best Director. Oh, yeah, it is like the, that. That. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which says everything again. To even be nominated. I, really, I, mean, I think it truly is like... It truly is like that. Um, four people, I think. Four women. Yeah. Something like that. Um, can we play the clip, and then we're going to talk about it afterwards? Uh, so I'm guessing not a lot of people in the audience have necessarily seen the movie... Um, so maybe it's worth describing the trajectory of this particular character yep. who's a bit of a shallow cad. Yes. Which you can tell, of course. Yeah, I just, I suddenly realised, now I feel so paranoid for all the men who are <laughs> under attack. I promise it's not a male bashing evening. Um, but this, I mean, it, it is interesting because he's, he's, he's seemingly so charming, but you, you, it's, a, it's a black comedy. He turns out, to, he's just like this complete fool. I mean... The subtext is that the seven beauties are his sisters and he is so protected of, the, of them. I mean, the feeling is that she's made this film have a go at that whole Italian macho honour thing. So, in the end, he, he, gets, he, he makes these terrible decisions and it's always about his image and so he ends up killing somebody, he goes to jail and um, and then when he, and the, and the, you know, the, war, the war breaks out and he's, you know, captured by the Nazis. He just makes, he ends up, when he finally gets out, all these errors are made to protect one of these sisters' sense of honour. Um, and when he gets out in the end, they've all, to survive the war without a male figure, um, they've all had to become prostitutes, even his mother. But it's sort of done in a very tongue-in-cheek way. <laughs> and, where, and he's like, he's, he's, but the thing that's wonderful is he's sort of, you can see he's sort of adorable and charming and she shoots him like that with his, you know, light in his eyes and everything. And then he, you see this, this one catastrophe after the other. But I partly chose it because, I mean, and Lena Vertmuller was Fellini's script assistant. Um, and so, but it was really that that's, the first film I think I've ever seen that was directed by a woman. Um, so that was 
part of the... Um, and it, she's, uh, she is a great filmmaker. It's got, um, you know, great performances and she's, she's a real master with the camera and... and um, but, yeah, no, it's funny. When I went online to double-check what people had said about it at that time, um, some people, they say, you know, he was so disgusting and um, and there's apparently a sex scene in the jail, which I'd forgotten. I was like, <laughs> I mean, you know, somebody said, so if you want to try and find the film, because uh, he, 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 he'll do anything sort of to win his way and he, so he thinks he'll get, um, if he um, seduces, and, and he's always been, a, you can see, seduce all the ladies love him, so he thinks he'll seduce the woman who's running the, um, the prison camp and basically she uses him and dumps him. Yes, and you know, he, he really has no moral compass at no, all. Um, no, no. And ter terrible things occur in the film that he perpetrates because you know, he just wants to get through from one scene to the next, I guess. Yeah, no, he kills like one of his friends, friends and yeah. he just like one thing after the other. Um, so it's a, it's a quite... You wouldn't want to watch it over and over in a desert. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so stylish and fun and it's got the music and the great cast. And... But I, I think your point that it was the first film you'd seen directed by a woman is, is the critical one here. And, and of course, that was a position that in the end uh, was something, a mantle that you ended up carrying, being the first woman to direct a film in Australia, mm -hmm. a feature drama for nearly 50 years. And I wondered, you know, how... I mean, those of us that deal with these gender issues all the time. You don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm a woman and I'm now going to make a feature, you know, and therefore, and that's my burden or that's my claim or, or whatever. Um, it's, a, it's an odd thing when that comes to be, to be your description. You know, you were the first woman to make a feature drama in Australia for 46 years, which was my brilliant career. And it, it was a, a remarkable success that launched careers for a number of people, including yourself. Um, it was a, an exceptional... Well, the burden was beforehand. I mean, there yeah. were other, um, a lot of, you know, other young women directing and making short films and documentaries around the same time as me. As it turned out, I was, I mean, but that, that year I got at the afters, the first, um, at the film school, there were only two women and, and Robin Murphy, the other woman, was much more, she wanted to make social documentaries. Um, mm. So... But, you know, I just felt part of the team. It was Phil, Philip Noyce and me and Chris Noonan who went on to direct Babe and so on. But when, um, when the film uh, finally got up, uh, there was a huge hoo-ha in the press about the fact that I was a woman and would I be, you know, able to do it? Would I faint in the heat in the desert? And would the crew hear me with my small voice? And, um, and I, so I was very aware... And I remember saying to... I haven't noticed your small voice, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I did say to Philip Noyce, I said... Because he was doing Newsfront the same year. We were both, you know, in film schools at the same time and finally got our features up, whatever it was, five years after. And, and I said, you know, well, it's hard enough for anyone doing their first feature because it's a really risky thing and you think, well, you know, if it doesn't work, that might be the only feature. But I said, I I've got the extra burden, like, can a woman do it? Um, so, you know, in, in the back of my mind, and I had to then just put it way, way back and away, um, where I felt, well, if I fail, it's not just that Gillian Armstrong is a shocking filmmaker, it's like women can't make films. And, and the film itself was topically 
driven by a, a woman's story and you had a woman producer as well. So it's, it kind of then becomes even a more collective failure or risk. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Because it's like women's you know, uh, stories won't work either and, and women can't finance movies mm. or, or have sense, sense mm -hmm. at that level and so mm -hmm. on. So it's not even at the directing level. It then becomes a, a horrible kind of burden or... You know, responsibility. Yeah. yeah. No, it, well, it was, and it was one I just basically had to, like, luckily I'm a Sagittarian, onward and upward. Oh, and lucky it worked. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, actually, it was very lucky yeah. it worked. <laughs> <laughs> but in America, it was interesting when I, you know, when the film was released there, and, um, I, and there's a very strong women in film group who, um, and they'd asked me to come and speak to them, and they said something that I hadn't really thought about but it, when I look at Seven Beauties, I just think, well, I'm glad that I actually went to film school and um, where I did get a sense of seeing films from all other, all other cultures and other worlds where, because the American women in film said to me about Brilliant Career, they said, thank heavens you've made a film that looks like a big film because you see, the way they think about women's films here is women make like little story, domestic stories, basically. Because a, a couple of actresses in the 70s had made very low budget films and they were, you know, like were sort of small domestic dramas. And that's, and I had never thought of that. I'm just like, you know, well, it's a film and I'm, you know, do my best to make a film look and feel big. And, and Lena Vertemöller definitely was big, big. And that's what I, you know, loved about it, loved her energy and her, you know, visual bravery. Let's talk a little bit about America while we're on the topic, mm -hmm. because you then did go to America to make, you've made several films now in, in America. Um, how was that moving from a domestic, in, a small English language domestic industry, even though you're making big films in that context, to working at, at The Crucible? Well, it's very, very different. Um, basically, you, I mean, the joke is that, you know, we all We've, we all imagine the American studios are like how we'd seen them in the movies where there's, you know, Jack Warner or someone at the table, okay, we'll make that film, you go for it or whatever. But it's actually, you, it was working with bureaucracies. Mm. It was so conservative. Um, and I felt in the end, no one cares about the film. All they care about is saving their jobs. So people I might have had script meetings with early on, it was Mrs. Sofa was my first American film, um, with Diane Keaton and Mel Gibson. And I'd have a script meeting early on and they would say, with the executives, and they would say, oh, we, we love the work you and Ron are doing on the script and it's so brave, we love this and this. And then, you know, when it came to closer to the shoot, um, it was like, it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They were, um, when it looked like it was going to be, the budget was coming in at, at a bit more. Um, and that was actually because we originally, they hoped that it would just they budget for one star, that was Diane, um, and that there'd be an up-and-coming person. But in the end, when I looked at everyone, there was really no one better, I felt, for Ed Biddle than Mel. And he was a big star then, so they had to pay him more money. But, you know, the way it works, you have two stars, you have more star power. But they hit the roof that, you know, this film was meant to be, it was those days, um, I suppose everything's be three times more now, you know, this was meant to be a $12 million film and now the budget's come in at 13 and I was thinking, well, <laughs> but you got Mel. Yeah. Um, and then they were like, so all the lovely scenes that we've written, 
Well, you don't need to see the exterior of the, of the jail. I'm not, well, it, it is about an escape from a jail. Um, <laughs> well, there must be some just wall in Toronto. Because um, I wanted to go to Pittsburgh, so that it was obviously on the paper. You could see that's an expense to take the crew to Pittsburgh to shoot this real amazing period jail where the story actually took place. And they were like, you know, I mean, they were going like mad. Like, well, just, isn't there some sort of wall they can just like jump over in Toronto? No, there, there aren't any many period buildings in Toronto. And it was just like madness. So the difference was in Australia, um, we were independent. So... Margaret Fink, who raised the money for my brilliant career, we had to answer to the government investments, and it was New South Wales Film Corporation uh, and some private investors. But basically, and Greater Union Cinemas, but we really had freedom to make the film we wanted to make. Um, it's such a different system there. Um, that we, It's so, so many more fights about actually having creative freedom to make the film you want to. And then they test the film, which and audiences fill out. And I was like, what? They're going to fill out cards and tell me what they think? And, that, and then the studio read those cards very, very seriously and analyse them and will say, well, the people didn't like that and they didn't like this. We want you to cut that out. And, you know... Um, has anyone ever done one of those? I've done several of them. They're hilarious, right? I often take my students to LA and we, if we can, we'll do a test screening. And I had this student who, we saw this terrible film. The student was filling out the card and I said, what did you say? And he goes, I said, this is a film I wouldn't even take my girlfriend to if I wanted to dump her. <laughs> <laughs> well, people do say incredible things. I decided um, with, that I would, I mean, it was interesting. With Mrs. Sofal, that was the first time ever that we'd had a test screening. And, um, you know, I was given certain tip-offs. I mean, I, had a, I did go, luckily, got a wonderful agent in America. And they, so they would say, that, no, the key thing is that you test your film with the sort of people who are going to like it in the sort of area where, you know, so you don't take it to, like, Hicksville, where they just want to see a Western. You know, they're going to... Because they've got to tick the box. Will I recommend this to my friend? That's one of the key things. Will I recommend... It's the, that's, that's, that's the key to... With, will it be commercial? Um, so you have to make sure you take it to a smart town. So we, I think we had Boston, which is a university town and so on. Anyway, the word had got out that Saturday that Mel might be at the screening. And um, so when um, the editor and I, my Australian editor who I took um, with me, when we turned up, there were like queue around the block and that block and girls were screaming, like Mel was like a rock star then, mm. screaming and so on. I'm thinking, this is the audience is going to judge my film. And Mel is not playing Mad Max. He's playing a criminal who reads poetry to an older woman who he falls in love with. Um, when we got into the cinema, um, we're sitting and we've got real... They don't know who we are and I've got real people all, all around me. Oh, it's just like, it was the worst experience of my whole life. And then I, the, right in front of me there was this guy and I could tell that he didn't want to be there. His girlfriend had dragged him along because she wanted to see Mel, who I was thinking... How many minutes in before he starts reading the poems when they're all going to, like, leave? And, and he was, like, really grumpy, didn't want to be there. And then the, we put sample credits on. You haven't done your finished thing because basically they're expecting they're going to have to recut the whole film once this audience has seen it. All the studio executives have flown up from L.A. They're all in the very back row, so you couldn't even lie. But anyway, they're going to have these cards. So the film starts and... 
I suppose Mel's name was first before Diane's. I think so. Mel's name comes up, and half the audience scream. And then Diane's name come come up, and then it turns out there seemed to be a bit of a competition of the people who wanted to be there for Diane. <laughs> and they're all cheering, and I think I've got this dark tragedy. And they're all like hyped, you know. They're all like, you know, trying to outdo each other with the scream. I was like, oh no, just get me out of here. This is just going to be like, you know, death, death. Anyway, for me, the highlight was the guy in front of me who didn't want to be there. Um, when we get into the sort of action chase and so on, and then finally there's this scene. I don't want to be a plot spoiler in case you were all going to go and get it. But anyway, somebody shoots somebody, and it's a real surprise. And um, he jumped out of his seat. He got, I was like so thrilled. He got like so scared. He like leapt. <laughs> and the other thing was, you know, the, the big surprise. I mean, I did learn from this, like, duh. It actually is a good idea to show your film to audiences, not with all the executives in the suits up the back, but do it, get in general public, not your relatives, not your friends, not your mum and dad, just like regular punters who can write all the truth now on the card before one day you're reading it in the paper. Find out now because you could actually fix something. Mm. And the thing that Nick Bowman and I discovered, the editor, was... It was too violent. We had been in the cutting room for so long and in the story, because those days the, the bullets were lead and they just went into the body. They weren't like a modern bullet which, you know, goes through you or explodes inside and so on. And we, you know, were following history about how many um, bullet holes our characters had in them and so on. Well, the audience were like, oh, oh. It was like a Sam Peckinpah movie. And, and there were... Well, that was the biggest criticism, that um, it was too violent. They got really upset and we were, oh, yeah, no, well, we didn't really want to go completely over the top and take people out of the story completely, so we, we did turn it back. Did you imagine those actors in those roles when you were, were you know, at what point were the actors brought on into to your thinking? I, Never remember, I never see actors in roles. Yeah. When I read a script, I see the characters. Yep. Um, I'm often asked, because the producer, first thing the producers want to know is, what actor did you see in the role? Because they're just thinking, who can we cast to make money, who will raise the money? Um, Diane was attached. Um, as the producer, Scott Rudin, who is now one of the leading producers in America of stage and screen, um, he was, I remember we were all traveling around looking at jails on location surveys and um, it was his birthday, and, and he was, his hair was already thinning. I thought he was, like, maybe a year older than me. I was, like, you know, 29 or something. I thought he was 30. He was 24. <laughs> but he's, like, a boy genius, amazing. Yeah. Anyway, he very cleverly, he, um, he, he talked me into... He brought the project to me when I was publicising Starstruck in New York, told me the storyline and showed me the picture of that jail, the one I fought to finally... Because it was so, you know, she was this deeply religious Christian woman, it's a true story, fell in love with um, a prisoner and they, she helped him and his brother. Similar thing happened only a few months ago. Helped the two of them out. But she went on the run with them. They were, you know, they would have been so much better to dump her. Um, and it was through snow and all that. So it always made the writer and I believe that obviously he really did love her. I mean, she was older, she had four kids, she was the warden's wife. Um, so it was such a great story. And then the jail, 
it looked like a sort of medi in the inside looked like the Sistine Chapel. So it was this weird with cages. So it was this inc this incredible mix of like imprisonment and cages with religion and anyway. So I was hooked. Um, but no, I I but Diane was attached to it. Okay. And I met with her um, early on, and then I saw I was forced to. I said to Scott, who said, "What about?" Mel Gibson and I said, "Well, you know, well I know Mel's work, but there, there must be like a million Mel's in America. I mean, I should come and see all who are all the hot, young, sexy men are." <laughs> and so I, you know, we did screen. I'm a very thorough caster with screen <laughs> tests. Oh, we're getting back to lust. Wait, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, all, all the hot, up-and-coming young people, and. The, only, the person who was the biggest star was Mel, so he, you couldn't ask him to audition. So I remember we sat in the theatre, we ran the sc you know, screen test with each of the young men that Diane kindly agreed to read scenes with, and she enjoyed it as well. And then we <laughs> ran a shot of Mel from Mad Max, and we went, or maybe it was, it was been Road Warrior probably by then, and we went, yeah, there's no one with his power on the screen. So, I mean, I, I just thought as an Australian, oh, well, yeah, I know Mel. I felt the same way. I was in LA in 85 and I, I went to Thunderdome, just a general screening, and I was sitting in the audience minding my own business and Mel appeared on the screen. I hadn't realised the audience was full of women. They all rose and ran to the front of the, the theatre. This is unbelievable. Of course, coming from Australia where audiences don't do anything. No. Like, you know, they yeah. just sit. But, oh, well, um, in the end, we had to, you know, do all that stuff of, you know, because I'm um, trying to hide where he was living and, you know, oh and, yeah, it was, it was like dealing with a rock star. It was a little bit of a leading question because the, the next clip you're going to show, mm -hmm. the director wrote the lead role specifically for the actor. Um, Did they? I might even yes. Know this. And in fact said that if, in th if he had turned it down, she wouldn't have made the movie at all. Oh, so, I think I know which one it is. Yeah. So, um, um, am I guessing? And it, <laughs> all right, yes. Yes, she, 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 um, she chased him for a long time. A long time. She left hundreds of messages. He didn't have an agent. He just had an answering service. I think he's still the same. Like yeah. He's quite an original. Interesting man. Lost in translation with yes. the lovely, lovely, adorable male Bill Murray. Such a great opening it to is. a movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in this clip. We've been talking about the translation of being an Australian who then moves to America to work, but, but also in this, of course, is the, the straddling of the, the work and the domestic, the, the work life and the domestic life with the, you know, you forgot Adam's birthday. Yeah, no, that's why I wanted you to go that far in the clip because my memory... I mean, it's interesting, this thing about these films that, um, that you've seen and loved. Um, when, you, when I was forced to look at them again, because I actually, I, I rarely see a film a second time. Um, I've got to move on, I'm you know, worrying about my own films. Um, so it was actually a delight to have to sit through these films. I couldn't get all of Seven Beauties, but I've sat through all the others again, and I, um, having had that time jump, I saw a lot more in them. It was interesting, because my memory of, I mean, I would have said um, I've chosen lost in translation because she's such a wonderful, she's got a unique style and creates a whole world and takes you into a world, which I think the best directors do, um, have a, 
and she's got a very poetic and interesting visual style. But seeing it again, I realised that also the film had um, a lot more humour and and also more depth. My memory was just all like, oh, I remember that amazing Tokyo and all those scenes in the hotel rooms with like dusk light and the lights out there and definitely the power of being alone when you are overseas and travelling, which I've done a lot of. Um, not that I met men in bars when I couldn't sleep. I turned the <laughs> television on. But, um, um, but the thing that I, that I, I forgot was that how cleverly she shows, just like with that letter, that there's, he's, he's dealing with domestic issues from home. Um, and then it's more obvious with um, Scarlett Johansson's character because, you know, she has discussions with a boyfriend. But she also rang her mum at one point and they both... And he rings home too and there's these times where you realise they're both um, quite troubled and they, they are reaching out but they're not getting there. And it's actually really beautiful and quite sad and I forgot that... They, they finally have this conversation where he's really very, very gentle and very supportive. And she's where she's because she's lost. She doesn't know, you know, she's been married two years and she finished a degree, but she hasn't really found anything. And it's it's very delicate the way it's sort of both. There's like a sexual element, but he doesn't go there, hmm. although he does kiss her. Um, but he's very gentle and sort of fatherly and actually, and I think the most that scene he has with Sophia where he finally does try to advise her about life, Bill is the most open and vulnerable I've ever seen him on screen because he does play that funny guy, the cynic and so it's... Yeah, no, it's very touching. And then, of course, I love that whole world of Tokyo and as well and these people who both can't sleep or up all night and I've been turning on TV and it's all in another language. And I thought also the, um, the idea of um, the domestic and the work worlds colliding. I mean, you've been a working mum. Many of us in the room are working mums or have been. And, you know, that's, that's an interesting, often very you know, difficult... Um, it can also be a very energising kind of space to be in. Um, I think very few filmmakers capture that, even with the subtlety of Sophia, mm. on screen. And I, I, I really love that about the opening sequence. It's just one of those things where you go, yeah, we've all been there. You know, oh, I've never forgotten a child's birthday, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, possibly. Yeah. Oh, there's great stuff, like she... Ke- the, you, the, his, he, she says so much about the relationship where all the, the wife is obviously... He's out there, you know, he's the star and earning all the money and she's obviously renovating the house for, like, the tenth time. Mm. And, you, I mean, you don't need to even say that. You can just tell his, you know, she, all her messages to him about, you know... Uh, and she even uh, FedExes carpet samples. I mean, he, he pours them out and there's all... You know, which burgundy do you want? And <laughs> he's like, you know, I, I don't mind, whatever, and... Yeah. There's this kind of interesting mental battle or emotional battle going yeah, on yeah. within the characters, but also in the drama. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, there's a, a great, uh, possibly apocryphal story about that opening scene uh, where Scarlett Johansson, who was only 17 when the film was shot, um, playing an older character, um, uh, apparently was quite reluctant to be filmed in the, the transparent undies. 
And so um, she was finally convinced when Sofia Coppola modelled the undies for her. So my question is, to what extent does a director go <laughs> to get a scene? <laughs> How far will you go, Gillian? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it, it is a delicate thing. Um, I've dealt with actors who have um, all sorts of issues and often you don't know till the day, not even the most obvious ones, but I do, I do remember um, dear Claudia Carvin, we had a scene where she was... This is in High Tide. In High Tide, and she's, she was, she, I think she was 14, but, and playing 12, and she was just um, uh, meant to be waking up at night, and she's just in like a singlet and goes to the window, and I know, you know, she was really, really embarrassed. She was just at that age, you know, where girls' bodies are changing and so on, and, um, you know, we all do everything we can. Um, you know, hair, makeup and thing, you know, whether they worked out some way to stick tape under the singlet so she felt like she was being covered or something. But, no, there are times when you, you know, you do realise... And I, I've heard of terrible things directors have done um, for the shot, um, even, you know, bully an actor to make them cry and then quick roll and, and I, I've won't never... Go there. I've, I won't go there, I won't, no. Oh, I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> um, someone, um, the next clip, um, someone who I think, uh, like Sofia Coppola, is an, uh, has incredible visual acuity, you know, an in incredible sense of that relationship between the domestic and, and the dramatic, um, is, oh, no, just to remind you where we're up to. Oh, right. <laughs> um, and who's also, and this, uh, this uh, also strikes me as being quite interesting, that um, several of your clips um, are from your contemporaries. Um, which is quite unusual when I've done these interviews before. Um, most directors that I've worked with don't tend to pick people that they know personally or that they might see as being their peers. Um, they tend to pick directors from previous eras or directors that are out of reach in some way. Um, I'm really interested that you haven't done that and in this instance it's a very obvious one when you do see the clip you'll realise. Um, I'm I'm really impressed that this is a, a clip that appears in your top five, I have to say. So. Oh, I think it's just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful film. And I've got to tell you that um, people come up to me and congratulate me for it all the time and tell, <laughs> and tell me how it's their favourite film. And um, one of the other parts of Sagittarians is where truth-sayers, or we could also be described as being just completely tactless, um, so when people come up to me and say, I want to mention it, I just love your film, The Piano, so much. <laughs> I used to say, um, oh, look, um, it's not, actually not mine. That's Jane Campion's. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm brilliant career. Um, <laughs> and um, my husband finally said, Jill, just accept the compliment. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're embarrassing people. I'm not, I'm, oh, oh yes, no, no, you're right, you're right. So I'm on a Qantas flight at the steward, da, 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 and he says, by the way, <laughs> the piano is one of my favourite films of all time. <laughs> and I'm sitting next to John, so I go, oh, thank you, thank you so much, thank you. And then, and then five minutes later, he comes back, I'm so sorry, because <laughs> I'm trapped with this guy, like he's not a, someone passing me in the street. I'm so sorry, I got you mixed up with Jane Campion and all of that and everything. And I was like, John, I think I'll stick to my way. <laughs> <laughs> the, pa 
power of the name Jane Campion is legion. I, when I was um, writing the book on Jane Campion, I had to. I was living in Portugal and I had a whole bunch of books shipped to Portugal, and they got caught up in customs, and I had to go down to the customs office and. The woman at the customs desk who spoke great English, luckily, because I spoke rubbish Portuguese. She's like, well, what are the books? And I went, oh, they're books about Jane Campion. And she goes, Jane Campion? Oh, no need to pay. <laughs> Just waved all the books through. <laughs> well, I hope you can tell a similar story about me. <laughs> Commission me for the authorised biography. Well, I think I've been generous enough about Jane. I think that story was going too far, don't you? Yeah. Uh, well, there's a, an interesting story we'll get to later when we get to your last clip about um, you and that person. But anyway, um, let's roll the piano. I just think it's so original. It was so clever. I forgot um, about... I mean, even... Th I mean, Jane is such a fantastic visual storyteller, but the story is so... Um, wonderful that she has this character that... I mean, Holly can't speak. And, I mean, she should be the one who got the Academy Award. I mean, the, the, the kid is extraordinary in it, there's her daughter. But, um, you know, Holly conveys so much with just her face. And then all the casting is brilliant. I mean, Harvey's just, like, to die for. But I think that what she's... It's so sensual. It's so erotic. I forgot that the whole premise was that, um, that he saves the... The husband, Sam Neal, leaves the piano on the beach and Harvey, um, she begs to take her back and he sees her play and sees the joy on her face. And it's, it's a really interesting thing that she set up how these two men, one never gets and understands what she gets from the piano and then the Harvey's character then brings, works out a deal with Sam and says, um, um, you can have that part of his land of mine if you um, bring, get your workers to bring the piano up. Um, cause I, and he says he wants to learn to pay, play the piano. I forgot. And that was a way to get her there. So she, he says she's coming, and then she turns up thinking she's going to teach him how to play the piano. But he says, no, no, I just want you to play it. And it starts off like this, and then they start doing this trade, and basically... He wants to get closer and closer to her, and it's this like five key. I mean, in the end, they work out this deal that is she will have to come and play the number of. He says every key on the board, and she says, mm -mm -mm, and it says points black. And then so the deal is for each black key that each time she has to come before she wins the piano back. And and then of course when he's starting to want her to take off items of clothes. Um, then he's bargaining, well, how about, you know, three keys and five. Um, but I think the thing that what she's done um, and that people forget that um, sensuality and eroticism is so often just in the detail and it isn't like in Game of Thrones they can take their medieval clothes off like one zip and they're absolutely naked and I'm always going, but it'd be so freezing in that castle. <laughs> and, um, and actually... That scene where just his finger is is touching her skin through that hole in her stocking is, to me, you know, so more erotic than someone completely naked with another person completely naked on top of them. Which she shows you because the next scene, of course, you see naked children and they're not eroticised at all. No. But it's so um, brilliantly done. She, she has 
um, I didn't realise until I saw it the second time last week that, I mean, the very opening of the film, your very first, there's a whole thing about fingers and fingers play the piano and fingers want to reach and want to touch. And the very, I mean, the opening of the film, you're seeing her point of view through fingers that are out of focus. And, of course, in the end, the big punishment when Sam finally finds out what's going on is he chops her finger off. And you have been subliminally looking at fingers, fingers playing, fingers touching. So when that happens, it's just like mind-blowing. I mean, I realised when I saw the film in the cinema, I probably had my hands over my eyes. I actually saw it, um, the, the chopping um, this time because, you know, I, I knew it was coming. But even then I was like watching and going, ah, no, no, no. But also this film is so powerful about... Um, loneliness and about um, colonisation These in this tropical environment, these white settlers in their ridiculous clothes and they're in mud all the time. And, um, and I, you know, in the end, it's actually, even though it has this sort of black darkness to it, um, in the end, it's actually an incredibly beautiful love story. It, you're, I've forgotten. It's actually, I, said, I, I actually sent the producer, Jan Chapman, a, um, an email saying, I've just watched it again and you should wear this film as a medal, you and Jane, for the rest of your lives because I think it's almost a perfect film. It's just um, the, you know, the use of music. Now we know the theme because it was played a lot, but you know, choosing that music, which is also driving. So this, you know, the music is woven into the images and the lighting, the casting. I mean, finding that little girl and you. I mean, Holly Hunter at that time was sort of like um, she played southern and sort of like Reese Witherspoon. She was like the girl next door, the funny one. And I remember the story that, you know, she, she wanted to audition. Jane didn't, wasn't interested. Well, you know more than me, you've written the book. But that was what I heard. Um, <laughs> but she, she taught, she played the piano and sent that thing. And then, you know, it was considered so brave that Jane, I mean, I'm an absolute b believer in period authenticity in costume. And she made Holly grow out her eyebrows. And, you know, she's, the Victorian look is so severe, but everything about it. There's a scene in it where when Sam's coming and he's trying to, he's found out what's been going on because she starts to basically fall in love with Harvey and he's trying to grab her and she's, the black dress, it's like a bat that's getting caught on these tropic, horrible twisted arms of trees and they're running through the mud and everything. It's so powerful. I mean, it's really just beautifully, beautifully written and directed film and Jane definitely deserved her Academy Award for script and probably should have got it for directing. I don't know what it was up against. What was it up against? I can't remember that year, actually. It's, it's it, well... Maybe it was a Godfather film or something. I don't know, but... Yeah, I can't remember. But I, I just think it's magnificent. It's, I mean, for me, film should be... Um, you, you should be taken out of the world. It should be visual. It should be essential. It should be faces that tell you so much, like every member of that cast, and um, and have the surprises like it does. I mean, the final scene when the she says, "Let the piano go," and a foot gets caught in the rope, and she goes under the water, and you think, "Oh my God!" You know, I thought that was going to be the end when I was in the cinema. Um, ah, no, it's a wonderful film. Absolutely. It, it's a film also that, particularly that scene that you've chosen, focuses on 
the kinds of um, uses to which sexuality can be put in, a, in a, an exchange that's about power as well. So there's, there's a kind of notion of power and, and sex and sexuality, which then turns into something else later in the movie. Um, and your next clip is also a film that um, deals with some of those issues, although in a, a, a rather different way and in a very different era, um, but nevertheless incredibly interesting and powerful movie about the ways in which women are relegated to using sexuality to achieve um, survival or success, as the case may be. Um, so, and it, obviously this film also has a, a little bit of relevance to your recent film production work with Ori Kelly. Oh, therefore we're talking about Babyface. <laughs> <laughs> so Babyface was directed by Alfred E. Green, um, wasn't it? Yes. yes. Um, and it starred Barbara Stanwyck and it was made, it was a pre-code film, they changed, and, and, but when they were shooting, um, and then uh, censorship changed and they actually had to reshoot the ending. And I, I had, um, Ori Kelly designed the costumes for Barbara Stanwyck and I'd never seen it before until I was um, researching the documentary. And it's an amazing story of what, it shows what costume does in a, in a character arc because Barbara starts off, um, she's working for her father, sort of semi, since semi being prostituted, working in the bar in this failing um, pub in, bar in um, Pittsburgh. And um, she ends up leaving and, and getting to New York. She's actually advised by um, a, a local... A strange um, philosopher cobbler. German immigrant, <laughs> and he, yep. He's a philosopher cobbler, he reads Nietzsche. And he gives her a copy of it and she said, well, I haven't got around to reading the book and he says, you can do more, you can make more of your miserable life. I think that might have been edited down as well in yeah. the two versions. So I'd only seen the, re the, the version was it released to the general public. And um, so part of this, what the story is, he says, you, he says to her, use men, you don't have to put up with this life. Don't just have them use you, you use them. And this story, which was made um, early 30s, has Barbara, she gets to New York and she goes with the um, black serving girl who worked, they, they go together, which apparently was also considered quite scandalous. Yeah. That, um, that she could she, have a friend. She has a friend yeah. who's black. And she stands at the beginning of, of, uh, in New York looking up in this tall building and thinking, says... I bet there's a lot of money there and, and she's working, I want to get there. And you actually see her find her way by seducing, she gets, seduces the first guy, it, you know, she actually has no idea about how you get a job. She asks the doorman, turns on the charm, oh, he said, well, there's an employment thing. She goes to the lower floor, then she charms that guy and it, I mean, clever charming, you know, it's not just right ripping a dress open. She hears he's got a southern accent. The other girl who's just left, who didn't get the interview, then she says, so uh, what part of the South are you from? And, you know, then, and, so, and then you see, boom, the next thing, she's got the job. Then she gets from filing to the mortgage department to the loans department. I mean, she ends up going out with the boss's son. Then he comes to see her to say, you know, you please, you must keep away from my son because he's um, there's a, a marriage with a wonderful society person. Next thing, she's on with him, the old boy. <laughs> And, and she's, you know, 
So she goes from basically rags, we see the clothes improve bit by bit till she's literally, she and the maid are in like top to toe in furs. The clothes improve, and it's, it's a classic um, early American skyscraper movie, so she literally moves her way up a skyscraper. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very um, pre-epic, mm. so it's, it's all very symbolic. So, I mean, that was really quite brave for its time, and in the end, she, there's a whole complication, she sort of gets caught, caught out and she... But she goes in to see the board. Oh, that's right. Um, so the, um, the the boss's son finally kills himself outside outside her door because he's found out she's with his father. So she's called into the board, and they're like, you know, we have to move this, get you know, fire this woman. And she comes on to them. Oh, you know, <laughs> I didn't know this was happening. I'm heartbroken, and and they're all like, oh, but you know, but oh, sure, I, you know, I I I kept my diary, but. Um, I promise I won't. And they're like, you know, and they're like, oh, well, maybe some money will help you, you know, destroy the diary. And she's like, all going really well. And they've actually said, we've got a the person we've got to bring in to now run the company um, is the Playboy son, who's you know ne'er do well, but at least it's, it people will feel confident because it's the same family name. He comes in. It's George Brent, who I got to know because he's in quite a few of Ori's films in those days, in Betty Davis's films too, and. He, because he's the playboy, he just sees con artists. So you see the, and so um, she's just about to accept the check and then he goes, because she's like, I just, all I wanted to do was work. I love my time. And so he goes, oh, you want to work, do you? Oh, well, I think we should keep her on. Let's transfer to the Paris office where she could keep working. And so it's this whole thing. And then, you know, then he comes over and, and she still, and he said, I thought you would have, you know, once you got here, that you would have gone. And she was like, no, I was going to prove to you. And so you see this, it's like this thing of wills. And so this is going to be the love story. So anyway, in the end, um, there's this whole thing where the bag's about to go bust. She's got all her money. And he says, you could, you could bail me out. And she's, she has to, and it's this amazing scene. And she goes, I can't. I can't give you this. I spent my life in you know, all the jewels she's got from all the men along the way. I need this. You don't understand where I've come from. And so, and she, and she goes, I'm going back to Paris. She goes, and then she gets on the ship and thinks, I, what am I doing? I had love. So she goes back, boom, 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 two ladies shot himself. And so, and then they're in the ambulance and she's, you know, she's still carrying the case with all the jewels and everything. And the, in the film that I saw, the film that was released, so um, the the um, ambulance guy says, "No, nah, it's over." Um, so she ends up with nothing. And then I read that this was the end that was ending that was reshot because it actually had a happier ending. And the studio said, "A woman cannot profit from." Immoral behaviour. <laughs> and when I asked for... I was just going to tell you that, that there were two endings. And when they found me the DVD to have a look, um, they found they had... With the two versions are now out. Someone's um, put the unreleased version with the original director's So they ending. found a, a dupe negative in the Library of Congress of the original ending. This is a very significant film because this is one of probably ten films that changed how Hollywood behaved and operated in the 1930s. So it's what's called a pre-code film, the code being the strictures that Hollywood imposed on itself to clean up its act. Um, 
and become a much more morally upright, uptight cinema. Um, but clean so up their act. I mean, some of these rules were just, like, ridiculous. You know, that, that was like, um, you know, you had to... Um, a married couple had to have two single beds in the background. You know, you had to have your foot on the floor and you were kissing. Yeah. But I didn't know there were also things like you can't defame the church, um, crime can't pay. Um, so mm. One of the other reasons this is considered a very significant film is it's set in the banking industry on the verge of the Depression. And, in fact, during the period of production, the depression starts to kick in. So one of the reasons for punishing Barbara Stanwyck is because she needs to be punished for bringing down the banking industry. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, there's, it's not just about sex. It's also about, you know, capitalism and, and Hollywood's place within that. So it's, it's a, when I say it's a significant film, you can't underestimate this movie. It's, it's phenomenal. And, of course, Barbara Stanwyck is such a powerful force in the movie but mm. outside the movie as well. I mean, she's clearly one of the most significant and extraordinary actors and players in Hollywood over a long period of time. Mm. But this movie really demonstrates it. So we've got actually three little clips. We're going to start with something from the beginning just to show you Stanwyck's opening bravura, which is breathtaking. Um, and then we're going to show the two endings. Yeah. Um, so, so you, you, get you to see you at the beginning, okay. which is, yeah. Um, so bear with us. There's quite a few clips to get through and then we'll have a, a quick chat about them, and then, and then we're going to do the big reveal of the final desert island flick, or film. It ends in the ambulance with a, it's a slightly ambiguous, but one could believe optimistic ending. Very optimistic. He opens his eyes and he smiles up at her, and the guy in the ambulance says he's going to make it. There you go. Um, and she says the same thing, I don't need that now. Yeah, but that, she doesn't get punished. They don't get That's sent the back ending, to Pittsburgh. They look at, it ends with them both looking at each other and smiling and it goes yeah. to the end. Ha they were happily ever after. So very... They didn't have to go back to Pittsburgh and work in the steel mill. Yeah. No. So, you know, in the, in the preferred ending that was released to the public after the code was imposed on the studio, she's basically um, punished and left to, to go to the beginning again like a Sisyphus, you know, yeah, right yeah. back to the beginning. Um, in the preferred ending that the studio would like to have released, um, she's not punished, you know, for finding happiness. No. She's allowed to. Yeah. I mean, she makes a moral decision about yeah. the money doesn't matter, love matters more than money. Yeah. Um, but they still get to keep their money. They, yeah, well, <laughs> um, well, no, I think, no, well, the, you assume because he wanted her to, uh, he, otherwise he was going to go to jail, um, she came back with the money to, to pay to the him, ba yeah. bank off to save him. So you yeah. think she will do that. Yeah. But you figure he, he won't have to go and work in a steel mill. Maybe she'll keep one diamond thing in her pocket. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of earrings. Yeah. 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 Um, the thing about endings I think is really interesting, as we are now getting toward the end. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in um, the way in which, for example, you've chosen endings for your movies as well. And... My brilliant career is a kind of an interesting one because there's a lot of stories about the pressure that was put on you around the ending for that for that film to to kind of make it slightly more romantically optimistic. Is that is that? Um, yes, the um, I mean the feeling was that women wouldn't go and see a film if um, our leading characters don't end up together happily ever after. And um, the whole point of um, the book <laughs> was that this was about somebody who, um, at this point in her life, wanted to go and find herself and find her career as a writer. 
um, we did point out to, it was really both, yeah, New South Wales Film Office and Great Union, um, Kim Williams' father, David Williams, um, were slightly worried, but we said, well, in the dialogue, when, when she turns Harry down, um, she says, sort of says, I can't, you know, there's something line like, not right now. So I said, for all the romantics, you could think, she goes and has a career, and then 10 years later, she's walking along the street in Paris, there, Sam Neill, bingo, for the romantics. So we, and we had to screen the film for um, uh, David um, Williams at Grady Union, and when the lights came up, he was sitting there next to me, and he said, you were right, um, it works. It's, it's wonderful, and that's the ending that it should be. And of course, in the end, it was that ending that made the film so considered to be so brave and revolutionary all around the world. Because, I mean, it's hard for us now sitting there thinking it was only 30 years ago. It was revolutionary that you had a female character that said, no, I don't want to marry you. Um, and so it, that was picked up by film critics around the world and was part of the um, success of the film, the very thing that we made a brave decision that felt right for the characters, um, which is what I would advise any filmmaker always, trust your instincts and fight. The final film that we're going to screen two clips from um, is a, yet another remarkable movie, a contemporary filmmaker of yours, Sapir, um, and someone who um, has done several interviews talking about how she herself is constantly confused for Gillian Armstrong and Jane Campion on planes. So, um, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, and, she, and it's a lovely piece, actually. She's, she talks about it in, in an interview and she says that um, she used to worry that it was somehow implying that all women directors were just interchangeable, but she ended up deciding it was a flattery and that, that she would just run with it. Um, so it's a, a nice, I think, um, compliment that we're here about to reveal a clip from her movie, but at the same time she feels, I think, a certain sense of indebtedness to you. And, and the fact that this film, of course, was released in between Campion's Piano and Your Little Women, so it's a, a kind of an interesting moment, I guess, in a very fertile period for, for women directors. Yes, I think, I'm sure I saw it, I saw it at an American Film Festival I think it was the early days of Sundance um, when really they only had like one cinema in the main street. And I think, so I'm trying to think if it was High Tide was being screened or something. Anyway, I, I, I saw the film and then I stayed around at the end to go up and to meet <coughs> Sally, Sally Potter to say what an amazing, amazing film. And she went down on her knees and took my hand and kissed my hand. Oh, wow. <laughs> then I said who I was. <laughs> it wasn't just, you know, that I was some... Acolyte. <laughs> she went, yes, I'm a huge fan of your films. So, um, and this film has, has stayed with me forever and it was really um, quite breakthrough at the time. She was a huge fan of because I remember interviewing her and, and her talking about the fact that um, in the UK, uh, women in particular, but... but you know, the, the industry itself was just incredibly impressed by how diverse Australian cinema was at 
the time and that women did have opportunities in a way that they didn't feel they had in Europe and, and North America. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that modelling that you in particular, but also Jane and, and some of the other women working at the time were able to provide globally made a oh, massive no, difference. We did. We, we were really world leaders. Yeah. The, um, the, I think we still are. We still have, like, some extraordinary women filmmakers. You know, Kate Shortland is yeah. also... I shouldn't say women filmmakers, but, um, but I suppose that's the point. Um, that we're way, way ahead of... Um, at, at that time. That time, yeah, yeah, America and the UK. So this, this obviously is the film Orlando, if you hadn't picked that up. Um, it's a, a really amazing film to end with because it's a film in a sense that's about not having an ending. It's a film about beginnings and, and constant recursive re-entries into the world. And um, I love the clips that you've chosen for this. So we'll start with the first one and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about it and then show the second one. Okay. Um, and then we'll, we'll turn it over to the audience. Um, so what an amazing set of reversals. You know, yeah, up. I, I'm sorry it's out of sync because for me the most perfect um, part was in the, the, the timing with the voiceover and then she turns and looks at the camera and speaks and it's just like absolutely perfect and measured and such a shock um, that you, you don't um, get that because it was not perfect and measured. But um, I just think that um, uh, uh, I think it was Sally's, I mean she had done a small film she was a choreographer. Um, she was quite experimental academic work almost. It was very... Um, done some sort of dance film. Yeah. But I, I just thought there was um, such brave filmmaking. I love from the very opening that wide shot. So normally when a character's walking, the camera follows them. And I love it that as the character's walking, the camera goes the opposite way. So you like you put an edge from the very beginning and, she, and, it's, and it keeps going back and forth and she's going back and forth but going the opposite way. And then I'd never seen Tilda Swinton before. So then you come into this huge close-up and she's just, like, breathtaking. And you don't know, is this a boy or a girl, which is the whole point through the whole thing. And then that perfect timing that suddenly talking to you is like, whoa, what is this? And then you're still thinking, oh, it's this little film. And then it just opens up to, you know, the, with the music and that extraordinary scene with all the torches and so on. And then, of course, seeing Quentin Crisp, who is playing um, uh, Queen Elizabeth, is... But, yeah, all the way through it, it's just um, mind-boggling, the visuals. So I think the second clip also captures this, of course. So um, the film is, is about transitions and, and both abrupt transitions but also historical transitions that are quite extensive. And this next clip is just extraordinary, the way it handles a, a transition mm. in such a... Yeah, because so the way. premise is that um, she becomes, as a young man, the, the, the Queen's favourite. The Queen says, you can have this house on condition you never age like me. And so we go through time, you know, the next one century, the next century, and she's always young. So she's sort of out of sync. It's funny that it was out of sync because she's in a way out of sync in, in many ways. And, and that camera movement that you described is the perfect encapsulation of that. Where, yeah. Where she's, she's going in one direction and, and narrative is going in another. And yeah. That's really the, what the film is all about, just in that one shot. Mm. Um, so you're going to see another clip which, where Sally Potter does this very innovative transition, I think. 
Oh, she says, nature, nature, I will marry thee, or she, she wants to have a relationship with nature of some kind. We didn't quite get the end of the dialogue. Um, I think that's one of the standout clips from the movie. It's the one that I've carried with me ever since I've seen, I saw the film. Yeah, must have been that sense of dance she has. It's just, yeah. Well, it's also, it's a little bit of a, a kind of, I think, a counterpoint to Peter Greenaway and those very controlling, you know, uh, period films where it's all about the architecture and the, the symmetry and what you get here is something occurring within that that's uncontrollable. Yeah, there are a lot, there are a lot of scenes that are played out in a very a graphic way and very, that are very symmetrical, but the, at this point there's a like, complete crisis when she actually finally finds out, because she also now turned into a woman, that actually she, she don't, won't own her property because women can't own property. And that's what he said. But he says, but it's okay, I'll marry you, and, and, or else, you know, and you're going to be a minister, and, that's, and then she loses it. So um, stylistically, she wanted it to change and for everything to fall apart, and she does that last sort of time jump into the Victorian era by the beautiful tracks and POVs and the, you know, and she, the skirt that sort of becomes like a living being. That's great. Potter started pitching this film about 10 years before it was, was finally made and um, when she um, pitched it to a, a number of investors at one point she was told, and I'm quoting here, it is unmakeable, impossible, far too expensive and anyway, not interesting. <laughs> of course, it's you know, none of those things really in retrospect. It's and and I'm, I know, I think I must have stayed for the Q&A and the screening and that, yeah, they had hardly any money and they, they made it in Holland and um, they must have they got investment there. Um, and later on, when I was looking for a, um, a designer for um, Little Women, um, her, there were two Dutch designers, Jan Wolf and Ben Oss. And um, Jan had moved to um, America and was looking for work. And, you know, I always remembered that. So um, I rang Sally to say what was he like to work with. And she said, you know, it was wonderful. So he did Little Women. How extraordinary. Which was uh, not long after this movie. So. Mm. Um, I'm very interested to hear if you guys have got any questions. Oh, yeah, we forgot Enjoy. about you lot. <laughs> Are you awake? <laughs> right up the back, and we have a microphone if you wouldn't mind waiting. You've been very good, very patient. They sorry, have, haven't they? Yeah. I'm sorry, it's not a question. My name's Dorothy James, and I've been to see the women he's undressed twice. I've sent texts to all my friends. I just loved it and liked the piano, I think I saw that four or five times. I have no doubt this film will be one of those, your film, The Women He's Undressed, will be one of those. I just loved it. It was wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, and how do you enjoy the exhibition? Because we have the curator sitting down the front, Yulan, <laughs> who, who, who spent how long? Nine months putting that together? Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that <laughs> <laughs> It's a beautiful exhibition. Any other questions? Oh, come on, we haven't covered everything. <laughs> There's the obvious one, what are you doing next? <laughs> yes, I'll say ditto to the first um, question, my feelings exactly. But I'm interested in your perspective on do women working in the film industry, do you mentor women coming up through the ranks? Or were you mentored by other women? No, I was mentored by Fred Skepsy. There weren't any other women. Um, 
<laughs> there were no women directing in Australia when I um, came out of film school. No women directing TV, no women making feature films. I don't know why I thought I could do it, but I obviously, I think my father must have um, instilled a lot of confidence in me. Um, but I, I came out from a, a, a film school where we were um, Swinburne. We thought we were filmmakers. So, you know, it was sort of like thinking of yourself like an artist. So you just, you know, plodded on and bit by bit. Um, mentoring, um, I have mentored numbers of women over the years and done many, you know, lectures at film schools and so on. I think that um, in the end, the best thing is to actually do it. There's, there's, I've, people have said, you know, they come all the time wanting, and most of my films have been actually, I've shot out of this country, or else when I've done the documentaries, you have to do them with a very, very small unit. Um, but a lot of um, people who've asked, can I follow you around, and so on, I've gone, you know what, you're just better off making a film. That's how you learn, by putting it together and seeing what you did wrong and editing it and so on. And it's so easy now, because you can do it, yeah, um, and edit at home on a computer and so on. But yeah, no, no, I've um, lectured and talked to many women's groups and I have a couple of um, other, you know, I have a daughter who's now entering the industry, so there's a bit of a mentoring going on there. <laughs> In the middle. I picked up from what you were saying that often there's a bit of a bit of tension and a financial imperative to get finance to have films made. Have there been some um, battles that you've lost and felt that the the um, result artistically was not as you'd want because of the pressure put on you by financiers predominantly? Um, I've only had one film ever recut by the studio. Um, you really, no one gets final cut unless you've just had a $200 million success. Um, so, you know, if you're not Steven Spielberg or George Miller, the studio do, will have a say of the final cut of your film, but with some incredibly strong producers, my producer on Mrs. Sofal and uh, Denise DeNovi, my producer on um, Little Women, Although, actually, I've got to say, with Little Women, they just rolled over um, with their legs in the air and said, can we give you more money to shoot some extra, you know, sh shots of the scenic change, the autumn leaves and so on. Um, but I did have some battles with Miss Sofal um, where they were worried that people wouldn't like Diane's character because there was a scene at the end where you saw her husband all alone and the house packed up and the children without the mother who'd <coughs> run off with the criminal and I did say to that executive but if I take that one scene out where we don't see him is it really going to make more money and he went no and it, he let me have it um, so but yeah I did one film um, we, it was originally called Little Havana um, with Greta Skarki and Jimmy Smits and um, I had very inexperienced producers that was a lesson um, I realised how important they are in protecting you and winning those fights. With the studio, if you think about it, it's their investment, they're worrying about will people come and see this film. I mean, 
we've all sat in films and gone, why didn't someone tell them to cut, to, you know, cut 20 minutes out of this? And so, you know, quite often there are self-obsessed um, directors with, you know, sometimes we do stuff up and they do need to say, this could be better. And the audience do tell you things that maybe can help. Um, so there was only one, and it was called Fires Within, that um, in the end was, was recut by the studio and I wasn't happy about that and really wanted to take my name off it. But all the others um, have been my cut, so what was good about them is to do with me and what was bad about them is also to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right in the back row. Oh, yep, I'm one. There's a gentleman up there. Yeah. Yep, right at the back. You're the lucky last. Make it good. <laughs> Pressure. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Gillian. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Just wanted to ask this uh, personal question, I guess. Do you think social manipulation where by the things like women's uh, film schools and or we'll make, uh, you know, we've got to make more, you know, one uh, f uh, women's film to every male film. Do you think that helps at all or, or is that, you know, going to cause long-term problems in, in eventually? You mean like quotas? Do quotas, quotas things like yeah. that, yeah. We actually have figures from um, Sweden who have a film industry which is also funded by their... Um, or, or not, the funding is assisted um, in a big way by their government because they're a small country as well. And they brought in a quota system. I think they... They pushed to make it um, not 50-50, but like 40-60 um, and to maybe over, hope the aim was maybe in five or six years. And they said within two years that the number of women had risen to 40%. I think they're now at 50-50. And um, that's 50% of total dollars divided evenly between the genders as well as total number of projects going forward. So, um, because that's, equity is always a very difficult thing to understand in terms of quotas. You know, you might get 50% of the projects, but actually the bulk of the money still goes one way. Um, they've actually achieved equity on a range of measures um, with not a great deal of effort, really. They just made a rule and it worked. Um, and it just simply uh, encouraged um, a space for women to apply when they otherwise thought they wouldn't succeed. I think it's, you know, sometimes with producers deciding about directors, one to the other, if they actually think, oh, actually, we might get more funding if we have a woman director, I, I actually think that that finally could make a difference. There is a great website called shitpeoplesaytowomendirectors.com <laughs> and you should see some of the Australian entries. They're very depressing um, and, you know, we don't need to dwell on them. But, you, you know, it's not just about the numbers. You actually have to change the culture. And that's the critical and most difficult thing. Um, and that takes, can take generations, although the instance of Sweden is a really, really telling one. Amazing, really. Really like quite we amazing. Sort of shocked. Is that only film directors? It's only, film. in this instance, film. film. Um, they have a, a CEO of the, the state funding agency. Oh, the website. No, but I'm sure there is one. I'm sure you can find um, ship people say to theatre directors. <laughs> you know, I'm the last person to... I mean, I really think it's got to be... Uh, you, I've always said it should be just of talent-based, but now I've, like, seen um, all these years when, you know, there's been wonderful role models, you know, with Jane and Kate Shortland and so on, and, you, and you know, I've presented awards to young filmmakers and graduation nights, and you think, why? And I know that 
there is this gap, and it's, this is part of, it's the culture of our advertising industry. There are very, very few female creatives writing. It's a really boyo culture. If you um, are not managing to jump all the ads like we all are, there, there's, and it has been sort of for the last five or six years, this sort of hip, boyo, gross out, funny, male thing. Um, and so the boys that graduate from the film schools get headhunted. Um, and it's, it, it is actually the f often coming out of film school the first way you get your foot in the door. And from, you know, doing a couple of award-winning ads, then you, you know, you might get a TV drama or a feature film. And I think that's where it's not happening for the talented young women who also um, may have won the award. So, so that's another thing that I think that we're going to sort of try to deal and talk. And we say in the mentoring that maybe the women in power in advertising need to like give step some up. step up and push to some and, and give some of these bright creative young women a go. So the issue is at the emergent level, but it's also at the other end where you have women with significant track record who are unable to succeed in getting projects greenlit. And I think, uh, just to end on a positive note, mm -hmm. this year has been extraordinary with um, Looking for Grace and uh, The Dressmaker, both being selected for Toronto, um, and Venice. I'm not sure if both of them are at Venice, maybe only one. But nevertheless, you know, these are really great signs that uh, women can succeed um, in generating, you know, successful projects that are sought after globally um, in a way that we're constantly told audiences won't be interested or, you know, corporate executives don't see the money working out on that one or whatever. I think there's been, you know, the poor Australian film industry for the, you know, last 30 years, everyone's like, should we do this, should we do that, will this make, you know, our films aren't working and, and there was a time where they thought, oh, there should all be genre because, you know, action and, and killing and murder, that makes money. And, um, and, and actually there were mediocre, and, and there is no rule. It, it, you know, bad genre, bad comedy, bad romance. I mean, they've, they've just got to be great and they've got to be imaginative. Yep. Um, but I think, like, that period wasn't helping because women, not that they can't do them, but they're actually not interested in them, really. They're sort of... Well, they make them differently, like the Babadook. Yeah, well, no, that was, um, yeah, 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 so. It's horror, but in, kind of not schlock, splatter yeah. horror in a way. Anyway, so. so it's, I think there are some optimistic signs, if, I can, if we can end on that note. Um, I think, um, because we do have to end, um, I, yes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know, we should all be like Orlando and just never age or wither or yeah. go away. <laughs> and <laughs> look only. like Tilda Swinton forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and have those stunningly tall, lithe, good looks. Um, we have an enormous amount to learn from Gillian. I feel like tonight's been an opportunity for all of us to, to really glean some extraordinary insights, not just into her career, but into the, the span of industry that her career has covered. Um, I think Australian film culture and global film culture has been enormously enriched by Gillian's work and presence. Um, I think we've been very, very lucky tonight to hear what we've heard. Um, Julian is someone who was part of something I think David Stratton called the new wave. But my sense is that she's constantly innovating. It's not just one new wave. It's a, a new wave almost on every project. And I really, really hope that that continues and that you are like Orlando and just keep re <laughs> regenerating in, in new guises and going forward. Thank you so much, Julian. It's been a real pleasure. Um, thank you. Thank you very much.
You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.